What wonderful reviews, my friends. I don't know when we've enjoyed better reviews. Remind me again? One of the best Doctor Who podcasts I've heard in years. Knowledgeable and articulate hosts and guests. Genuinely thought-provoking analysis. Oh, exquisite. And the second one? The warm, light atmosphere makes listening to these episodes a joy. Oh, fabulous, my boy. Absolutely fabulous. What was the other one we had before? The hors d'oeuvre, so to speak? Try something else. Oh, absolutely. What did you say? Try something else, Richard. Yes. Yes, that's what I thought you said. Ah, well, you can't please everyone. Hmm. I suppose we should brush up on the Romans and Pfizer Pompeii for a recording. True, true. <clears throat> Friends, Romans, podcast listeners, lend me your ears. I come to bury the lyre playing, not to praise it. Oh boy, that was a mistake. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, compare it with something new, add something borrowed to make something who. Yes, it's something who. (laughs) Yes, it's something who podcast episode 41. I'm Richard and we're back with another look at a pair of Doctor Who stories, this time with a Roman Empire theme. First up is a first Doctor story imaginatively titled The Romans. And then we'll have a look at 10th Doctor outing the fires of Pompeii. And with me to chew over these offerings are Big Finish writer and Missing Episodes podcaster, Paul. Hello, Paul. Good evening. We've got astronomy and astrophysics author and occasional TV quiz show contestant, Giles. Good evening. And to complete our quartet, we've got graphic designer and Dalek prop expert, Gav. Hello, Gav. Good evening. Okay, so let's kick off with The Romans, uh, written by Dennis Spooner. The second outing for Dennis Spooner after... Uh, that other one that you wrote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Reign the, of Terror. The French Revolution thing. The Reign of Terror. Yeah, absolutely. And directed by Christopher Barry, who's done several by now, I'm sure. Uh, and has just directed <laughs> The Rescue, actually, in, in this sequence. So, mm. so yeah, he's, he's, he seems to have a six-episode block, of which this is the, the second half and a bit. Mm. So, so the Romans, uh, anyone got a particular thing they want to say to start us off with this? I'll tell you what... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start us then and just say that I was really impressed by the pace that it went along at. I mean, I I often find with these 60s stories that it's but by about halfway through I'm kind of struggling a bit. But with this one, it felt like certainly that first episode it goes goes along very nicely. I didn't feel at all like I was looking at the clock or anything, and it kind of reached the end. And I thought, gosh, is that it already? Mm. So so yeah, I, I I was pretty impressed. Interesting, isn't it? It's a bit of a false start in terms of. Of four parters because they've this is what only the third four parter yeah well no yeah I don't suppose we can really Good count Lord. the first yeah. stories of four then an Aztex no. is and yeah. so be this and they've yes. they've got it they've hit gold but they don't know it yet <laughs> we're still going to struggle <laughs> through years of yeah. six parters and te- eight parters and sevens and whatever until they yeah. they find the, uh, the magic. Funny we ever had any fives except by accident. Hmm. Mm. Demons, uh, not and, and threes, yeah. I suppose, until later. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. I remember, I think the first time I saw this was the VHS. They did it as a double pack, didn't they? With the rescue and the Romans in 
Oh, I doubt they'd have been able to resist the temptation for a, yeah, <laughs> yes, a rescue yes. double dip. To get them, <laughs> get, the, get the rescue out of the way early, which is, yeah, I mean, that was neglected. I love I love them both. I think they're, they're both great stories, but... Is that when everyone first saw it? Uh, no, actually, I saw, I saw it on UK Gold, I think. I wondered if I was the only person for whom the phrase a chalice full of malice at the palace is ingrained into their heads because that was the UK Gold... <laughs> Uh, promo for this episode. Oh wow! Uh, and it just sticks in my head. Marvelous palace, and it was. I'm uh, surprised. Wow! Yeah. Whatever they were paying their continuity people. In fact, I think still. I think what he says is a chalice full of malice at the palace provides some quid pro quo for the doctor. I think is the full thing. Wow, that's um, that's extraordinary. Mm. I, I, I was going to ask if, if if they called that that double pack the arse pack or the arse pack. Let me just let me just get that right. How old are you? The, re- the rescue and the Romans. <laughs> the arse. You know, no, maybe not. Mm. No, no, please. Of course they didn't say. Of course they didn't call it that. No. What year was it on UK Gold then? If we're going to compare notes, and indeed, what year was it released in a big, fragile plastic boxed VHS uh. double bill? Well, I would have seen it at some point in the nineties. Well, now you've got me wondering. The VHS. I'm sure I must. Have, I'm sure it was the VHS release I saw first, but it uh, doesn't feel VH- like it's that late. VHS that, was 1994, so oh, there you go. So you did see it. Ah, good times. Hmm. And of course, if I may just say one more thing on the subject of the pacing and the length, it's um, it is yeah. two episodes shorter than Dennis Spooner's previous story. The uh, what was it called again? French Revolution. <laughs> Doctor Who and the French Revolution. And it benefits hugely. I, I found quite a few similarities between them. But in every way, in every way that they are similar, it, it's it been improved. Spooner has learnt from his mistakes, his awful, egregious, appalling mistakes. No, he's <laughs> learnt from that trial run and um, he's perfected it. Because, of course, Reign of Terror is in itself a slightly different approach to um, even, <laughs> even within the first series where almost every story is taking a different approach because they haven't quite fixed what it is yet you you can tell it's something different because it's the first hint that you can play around with the history stories and have a bit of fun with yes. it yes mm. yeah and the ups the ante here what else is uh, the most of the big names are kept off screen in reign of terror which i remember thinking yes. i saw it was a bad idea mm. i came down quite firmly in the camp of that being a bad idea and he's Learned from an awful egregious mistake here. <laughs> <laughs> we get lots of all Nero all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the, the comedy, I think the, both the comedy and the drama are pushed, really. Yeah. But the, the drama may be heightened just because of the, the um, shorter length so that everything hits a bit harder. Yeah. But I mean, yes, and of course it gets off, it gets off to a flying start, doesn't it? Mm. Well, it, it, it cheats. It gets off to a flying start yes. by doing nothing. It jumps yeah. forward from the. It mm. ignores the cliffhanger, jumps forward, yes. and then has wastes ten minutes showing our heroes lying around. But somehow that feels very fresh and pacey and new mm. and energetic. It's quite unsettling mm, yeah. and fun. Yeah, I I, I, yeah. I feel a bit on the back foot when it when it leaps ahead and then they say <laughs> a month's gone by. I think uh, when I was younger, I always used to find it really uncomfortable when anyone alluded to the fact that the episode basically didn't take place in real time. So anything right. that happened over a number of days, let alone weeks or months, just blew my tiny mind. I really didn't like it in the Dalek Invasion of Earth when one of them, it might be Ian, says something like, we'll meet back here in, shall we say, two days. 
I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this, this is going to be over in three hours. What? This just makes no sense. So, yeah, for them to s- announce that they've been there for a month is just bewildering to me. And uh, yeah. I find it quite hard to cope with. But, yeah, I, I really like that start with the jump ahead. That was a very kind of new series sort of thing. To well, just... it was. It's, well, it's the thing that Moffat um, kind mm. of... Mm. Well, it's not... Moffat was uh, pioneered that in part two of his two-parter, didn't he? Because he thought that mm. if you could pick up exactly where it was last week, psychologically mm. it would make you think that it was moving very slowly or something. Yeah. Was that what he said? Yeah. But quite what Spooner was thinking, Mr. Spooner, Dennis, um, what's the, what's the, what's the least familiar thing to call him? Mr. Dennis Spooner, <laughs> the writer. Sir? Uh, what, what was, why? Was, it, was he bored by the melodramatic cliffhanger he'd inherited? Yeah, it was that his first note? Oh, we can, right, sod that. <laughs> it's not that sort of story. I'm not having them crawling out of the wreckage mm, of the TARDIS and struggling. True. Well, of course, if this had been a six-parter, maybe we would have wasted <laughs> most of the first episode with them recovering yeah. from that and finding somewhere to live. But in note, we just get the setup. I think that's what's meant. That- yes, you'd have had a first episode like Dalek Invasion of Earth, where the, the, the problem was, what do we do about the ship? And in yeah. Dalek mm. Invasion of Earth, they get roped into a resistance fight. And in this... You would have had episode one of them finding the nearest farmhouse, finding the owner was yep. away, deciding to yep. live there, eating exactly. his grapes. So he shows relatively early on in the series that you don't need all that. But frankly, a lot of writers will not yeah. not take heed of that in the future for whatever mm. reason. Yeah, I mean the legend, the, the, the legend with uh, Dennis Spooner was always that he when he when he worked with Terry Nation in the, in the Daleks Master Plan. They both ignored the cliffhangers that the other one had written. <laughs> now, the only problem with that with that approach is they didn't actually write very many cliffhangers for each other because they basically wrote in clumps, didn't they? Because the, when you when you read um, DWW or whatever it was back in the day, you could believe that somehow that they, they were intercutting with each other. One was writing one, and another one was mm. writing one. But now, now we're a bit better informed. We realise that that, mm. that never really happened. But but in this case, he genuinely does seem to, as you say, completely ignore the the cliffhanger that's set from him. It does raise an interesting question of who who actually was responsible for the setup for like the next episode when they were doing it because they obviously they knew where they were going next mm-hmm. and uh, who exactly was putting that together. Is there any chance that? I mean, no. I was going to say, is there any chance that the rescue was written later? But then, why would you end it on a cliffhanger? Or perhaps he needed to end it somewhere, looking at the way the Romans had started. I don't know. Mm. But I mean, it feels like the sort of story that might have been done late in the day in the edge of destruction style except i just realized that that's another myth isn't it <laughs> it's possible that the ending of the rescue was added uh late in the day because that was the case with the master plan uh cliffhangers that you mentioned was that some of those cliffhangers were rewritten in once two sequential scripts had been delivered so that tosh rewrote the cliffhanger so that it, it, it blended them together so in fact some I of those see. some of those mythical cliffhangers weren't even weren't written by either spooner or nation <laughs> it, it's entirely possible because spooner did he script edit this as well as writing he it? did yeah. yes it's this odd thing that from my understanding whitaker commissioned him more or less on his way out of the door knowing that spooner was going to be taking over and they had lined up the new companion and so on, and and the idea was okay with Whitaker at the rescue, didn't he? Unless I'm he did, yeah. Yeah, so that was the idea that okay, and Spooner can ta- Spooner so can would, write the companion second story. Would Spooner have story. script edited the rescue? Or no, because he wasn't was on. Whitaker I don't know how I don't know rescue. how Whitaker got to 
script edit because I mean, I mean I'm only going by what um what the production notes say, but apparently Spooner had to get this finished because under under union rules he had to, he had to submit it. I not that he had a particular problem with it, but he he had to finish episode four in October of sixty four, I guess, because he was his contract as script editor started in November. Mm. So obviously he then right. didn't exactly script edit himself. But it's it's an interesting thing that comes up, which we may come on to when we come on to what was in the script and what was what was apparently worked out in rehearsals, which seems to be an awful lot of the good stuff. <laughs> right. So, so Dalek Invasion of Earth was the end of that first bank of serials, wasn't it? So that's so that's the end of of, of Whitaker officially script editing, but a, a, presumably the next couple of stories are also you know, being written at that same time for the rescue and presumably this one as well. Mm. So presumably by the time Spooner comes on board, there's most of that stuff is, is kind of already, already in, in the, in train, I guess. Yeah. Interesting question to which, yeah, needless to say, I am now doing doing some spur at the moment research. Let's imagine that's true and you you can come back and tell. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It's interesting that we got the same joke in both stories. So, Barbara says, "Oh, you know, we're from Londinium," and then uh, in the next one, uh, Donna's sort of doing all her uh, Latin stuff as well at, uh, in the market stalls as well. So, I mean, pre- presumably because they're they're very aware of the fact that 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 that's in the heritage. But yeah, it's... yeah, I wondered about it. There's two or three little things I thought might be direct reference. Yes. The ants in honey. I mean, yeah, I know that these are staples of of Roman cliche, but uh, I. I Watching them in rapid succession, I thought the ants in honey reference was was yeah. quite incongruous. But um, yeah, although it's also a, it's also a look forward to um, the crusade, isn't it? No, <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> hmm. I feel like there's more. Um, sorry, less punnage and and linguistic jokes. I feel like there are fewer linguistic jokes <laughs> in the, in the Romans, but that's just um, because people have different writing styles. There's not just fewer than in Fires of Pompeii, but also then say the Mythmakers, because hmm. I guess that's not where Spoon's comic interests lie. It, it's it's curious that this story has such a reputation for for being a a, a comedy because it there's a lot of it that's not trying hmm. to be funny. I mean, there's some pretty grim stuff i mean it's often very downbeat and pessimistic and uh the the slavery stuff is Mm. unpleasant and uncomfortable and uh not played for laugh yeah the barbara stuff is most something with the nero is played for laughs Mm. uh but with the in the context of being sold into slavery is absolutely not as the undertones are all there yes she has an awful story, doesn't she? I mean, yeah. as a character, yeah. you know, f- fundamentally, that it, you know, pretty much anything that could go wrong doesn't. Mm. Mm. I mean, even even the Nero situation is, pr- you know, pretty grim by mm. modern standards. By modern anyway. standards, yeah. Mm. I, I feel like I, this time, I noticed that most of the comedy is pretty black, apart from the thing everyone remembers, because there are two two schools of thought on this. First is that it's a comedy all the all through and through, and the other school is, oh well, it's it's only episode three that has the comedy in, and and the rest of it mm. is is straight. But yeah, I mean, even some of the jokes which seem farcical on the surface are are quite dark if you take mm. them literally. Like when uh, Nero tests the poison on his manservant. Mm. I guess that's the obvious yeah. example. Mm. Yeah, poor Tigellinus. We all laugh. 
because we're <laughs> awful people. But <laughs> that is still dark humour, isn't it? Mm. And there are other examples. I just didn't. Episode write them one down. is definitely trying to play for comedy. I mean, there's there's actual attempts at proper jokes. Yes. Mm. There seems to be a lot worked out in rehearsals. I don't I don't want to step on anything you're about to say, Giles. But uh, oh no no. It's a- the the doctor going uh, Nero pulling up a stool and the doctor going to sit on it as as Nero is about to use it and all these little bits and there's a bit where uh, the doctor's waving his sword about in in Nero's face and he yes. shoves it yeah. aside and all these bits presumably I didn't bother to check unscripted and it, it like the actors have seen there is some comedy in the script and they're just trying to punch it up in rehearsals mm. to mm. to convince us that it's uh, hilarious all the way through. I mean, what what episode three is 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 a beautiful farce, isn't it? I mean, it, it's 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 so it's definitely a farce. You, you've you've got this fantastic scenario where somehow the Doctor and Barbara never meet, despite the fact that they're about you know three feet away from each other the whole time. Yeah. You've you know you've basically got a very small set, but everyone comes and goes, you know, with 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 precision, which is mean, astonishing in a tiny little studio like they've got. But it all seems to work pretty well. I think it's really quite clever in the way that in the way that it works. And yes, I mean, there's there's comic elements, but um, for me, it's more it's more a farce than a comedy. Yeah, I feel it's episode three that I turn to and try and explain what I like about this and the few things that don't quite work for me. There are there are two sides, two things that are farcical, as you say. There's the there's a physical comedy farce with the, the literally running round beds and in and out of doors, hmm. and that isn't uh, i guess the problem is it's a bit silly but also if it was really well orchestrated it would have to really be on film or to mm. have been rehearsed for a month to, to mm. really pull that off and it is just isn't good enough <clears throat> it's, it's it's not rehearsed any better than the fights are um like the, <laughs> the doctor's fight where everyone he's Hartnell's yeah. in slightly the wrong position every single time <laughs> when he's battering barry jackson mm. yeah but um so for me the physical farce could have worked but doesn't always come off but um the farcical structure of the plotting, as you say, the near misses. Is it mostly just the Doctor and Barbara missing each other? Well, Vicky as well, I think. Yeah. Mm. Again, it's a, it's in the same episode, isn't it? Really, that happens mostly, and that that I do I do approve of. And the other thing about the um, <laughs> the bedroom farce angle with Nero and Barbara, I mean, it's it's played like Crackerjack, really. It's not it's not played like a <laughs> a, Bri- is, a Brian yeah. Rick stage farce. Yeah. I say that as if we all know what that means. I feel like we all know what that means, but I've never seen Brian Rick stage fast. But I hope you're all <laughs> in the same boat no. as me, right? We all know. Yes. But it feels more like it should be Peter Glaze and Don McLean. Yes, it does. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. It's quite a Scooby Doo. <laughs> one thing I thought this time that I hadn't really thought before is: is this really appropriate for a children's show? I mean, I don't. No. Mean, I, we all know Not that it. All. We all know it doesn't work for our modern sensibilities. <laughs> but that's a that's a different issue. Even then. <laughs> It's pretty obvious, yeah. especially when it's revealed that Nero is trying to keep out of the way of his wife, and she catches them at it, yeah. mm. with Barbara lying well, on top of him. I yeah, don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of reverse sex version of the Joseph story from the Bible, you know, where he's the manservant and Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him, but basically he's trying to do a good job by his master, and then, and then ultimately she kind of does a dirty on him anyway because he won't because he rejects her, but it's a bit like that. It, it, but, in the, but the other way around, the Empress here wants to poison her because she's worried that Barbara's going to take her place. Mm. They weren't shying away from that kind of thing in this era, because we had um <laughs> similar thing in, uh, there's a bit of it in Reign of Terror, wasn't there? With the there? jailer, wasn't there? Reign the jailer's Terror? fairly leery. Yeah. yeah. But then, he the thing is, it's, it's always Mar- Barbara that's the... 
yes. the object of romantic yeah, slash sexual interest. Well and Keys of Mariners, Keys of course. Mariners. So that's the, yep, yep. Uh, that's the not, although not Barbara, there's, uh, there's a one. questionable scene in the Time Meddler. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's funny what they... Yeah, again, different times and so on, I guess, what was considered... It's the tail end of that, that feeling like it's part of the genre, isn't it? The the genre of slightly fantastical action-adventure. Yeah. When does that sort of late uh, late Victorian, Edwardian sets the standards for those things? And it's, and it's still, unfortunately... I guess it's what well, uh, what the right, people are writing for Who at this point grew up on. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like Ben-Hur without the chariot race, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, structurally, it's definitely, it feels like it's a comedy throughout because there's certain things like, like the Doctor masquerading as Battalion and... Yeah, and all of this, it's neatly structured, farce in that regard throughout. It feels like, and but then it's funny that um, in terms of things that were apparently added in rehearsal or uh, at least weren't in the script, so, so far as I can judge, again from from what I think it's Richard Molesworth relays on the production notes, which are very good on this. You know, you have things like Barbara being the one that knocks Ian out with the with the pot. Yes, is yeah. was apparently. A late edition in rehearsal. Oh, right. Um, That's interesting, because it's, so the, it's quite heavily in the script in episode four, isn't it? It's Yeah, yeah. so that the assumption so was, OK, that by that time they'd have the time to mm. work. You know, obviously they'd, well, they'd, they'd aired. Had they actually aired? They were three weeks ahead by the time, because they, they straddled okay. Christmas in terms of recording, so they lost a, they lost a week. Wow. So definitely, I think they'd, they certainly had it in the bank and knew, so they were able to make tweaks to refer to the events of episode one mm. by the time they did episode four. But yeah, I and mean, you think, okay, that's such a that's one of the things we all remember about it is that great moment where where Barbara, <laughs> Barbara's the one that knocks Ian out and mm. and uh, yeah. sets the whole plot in motion, mm. really. And that is um apparently a late late edition. <laughs> and all the stuff between Hartnell and Tavius appears to be all the our hissing friend Ah, oh, yes. And all of that is apparently that's that's interesting. Apparently worked mm. out in rehearsal with um with obviously Hartnell and Michael Peake. Michael Peake. Mm. I had to look him up because because I was very impressed with him. But it, yes, he doesn't yeah. appear to have done anything else particularly. I kept thinking mm. he must be more famous. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. Real presence. He's a familiar. Yeah. T- I think he'd done his fair share of genre TV and and mm. and. A, good few features sadly he died only a couple of years after this in 67 mm. and i was the only reason that sticks in my mind was because bizarrely he died in my hometown right. which was already in my mind because edward edward kelsey uh, turns up briefly as the slave trader who buys ian in is that in episode one or is are, yeah. are we into episode two no i think we are in episode one of course episode two is on the galley edward kelsey being joe grundy of blessed memory. Oh yes. And being a, being a being a famous old boy of my my old school, in Petersfield, oh. in my hometown. So, oh. so there there we are. I, I had him in mind because I, I was thinking of Edward Kelsey, and then turns out Michael Peake lived there as well. For me, Tavius is the cat is the rock that holds his story together, and I don't mm. know whether yeah partly because he's there throughout, and not all you know not every character is. Mm. He's in several different characters' plots. So he's not mm. just stuck along one through yes. line. He comes and goes as a regular performance. And it ends, you know, he gets a good moment at the end, doesn't he? Mm. He, gets yeah. a, mm. riff, he gets a nice a character arc with a revelation that uh, makes you rethink everything you've seen. But mm. apart from yeah. that, one other thing, and I may be about to go too far for you here. I thought 
it's interesting what you said, Giles, about them possibly working up that business in rehearsals. He, uh, we first see him, is it episode one or maybe episode two, in the in his serious plot line as mm. um, procurer of slave women, the Nero, yes. when he's playing it very straight and doing mm. a very good job yes. of that. And we, we've got used to that version of the character. Mm. And then when we first see him in a scene with Hartnell, he's playing, the, he's given a completely different performance. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it is <laughs> the first time that a single character has had with straight moments and comic moments in the same piece that an actor has had to adapt, mm. but something about the way, he, the way he comes alive doing the comedy from the very mm. first moment he's on stage, and it's, he's already been playing the same character differently a few minutes before, really struck me here. It was unusual. Mm. I couldn't work out quite why. And maybe, as you say, Giles, it's because... That was stuff that he'd had a hand inventing, so maybe, hmm. maybe he's all for it. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's nice that his his character is, is enigmatic. You, you're not you're not quite sure what to make of him mm. really at any point all the way through. Mm. So so yeah, that, that, that that's a, that is a nice piece of, of plot. Well, you certainly when he when he first comes in, you think, oh, you know, you you would you would be forgiven for assuming he was you know this this story's going to be this story's predatory man yeah. after Barbara. Until, because I think yeah. we don't we don't actually know who he is when he's in the initial scene, and before the slave auction, do we? I don't think we, it's it's not revealed that he's no he he's relatively benevolent from the outset. It, it's a mm. shame in a way they could have made him a little more ambiguous earlier, mm. so right. that his uh, eventual sort of redemption not redemption but his his eventual uh... oh I suppose because his reaction to Bob was being kind to the, kind yeah. of the other lady. He, he says I can basically do everything except free you and hmm. you'll have a good oh, life. Oh, once, once they're in the palace, yes. Yeah. yeah. They, they could have um, made his motives a little less clear and that might have hmm. um, made that a little bit of a, more of a twist, but it wasn't a significant thing. Hmm. So you, you were mentioning, Paul, the, the um, doctors sort of having a, having a nice time with, with a bit of a fight scene. And I mean, it, it does seem a little out of character. I mean, certainly he doesn't seem to have been all that enthusiastic about getting into a scrap before this. But then, I was thinking actually, in next horror historical along the crusade, he does exactly the same thing. He's sort of hardly out the door of the TARDIS before he's laying into some poor Arab <laughs> in, in the middle of the forest. Does so, have a fight in the rescue as well? The story before, I suppose he doesn't uh, instigate it quite so gleefully. No, but it's. Um... Certainly, I, yeah, I love that scene. Himself. Of the I have to say, yeah, the confrontation with Coquillian. So clearly, I guess yeah. they've changed their minds about about um, Hartnell as, as being a passive character. Well, of course, he, bra- he brains he brains him with a spade in in the Reign of Terror, doesn't he? Yeah, that's true. He's, that's um, well, it's a sort of arc and a bit of back and forth with the Doctor and Violence because that's supposed to be funny when he brains the um, uh, yes, the, what's yeah. he called the yeah. the road gang leader yes spade yeah. and it's and it's i found it last time we watched it quite difficult to see the comedy in there because it just looks so violent mm. it's <laughs> partly because i mean is that mm, well we all have our own threshold for slapstick don't we and i i sometimes take it a bit too literally if, if i'm not actually watching an animated cartoon i tend to think <laughs> that's a spade that's going to hurt it doesn't matter how yeah. you're not going to convince me that's that's not whimsical. And also Hartnell doesn't quite play it with the lightness that perhaps he could. I dread to think rain. how you cope with Vic and um, Bob and their giant saucepans. And the, well, 
<laughs> Context helps. Yes. <laughs> Doctor is very serious, Giles. I believe it implicitly. Mm. And then when he's whacking people with his stick in Dark Invasion of Earth, you know, it's, um, mm. it's, that suits the grim atmosphere of that story. It was here. It is a farcical fight, isn't it? So we've gone to the mm. other extreme. Was somebody saying recently that in the Crusade he was going to finish, he was going to kill someone with a rock as well? Oh, really? Can I imagine mm. that? Can't well, remember. I mean, he certainly goes diving in very very quickly. I had a, I had a recollection that, as scripted, the Doctor's supposed to... The Doctor moves Ian aside to then continue the attack, and he was originally meant to grab a rock and, right. and finish the guy off. Mm. But that it was changed. Could have been a dream. I don't know. <laughs> it's Now you're saying it, it is vaguely, vaguely ringing a bell for me as well, but... I actually thought it was um, Paul Could who told me that recently. So, uh, oh God, sorry. I was, I was um, thinking he was going to jump in and uh, um, pick up the story, but I may well have made the whole thing up. So, hmm. who knows? If it was me, I will apologise previously. It advance. might have been you and... in a podcast a couple of days ago, in which case you probably don't remember it as being oh, very I'm afraid recent, I whereas ju- I do. I junk all my memories of each Doctor story <laughs> after I've recorded podcasts about them. So, <laughs> the Crusade was a year ago. So, who yeah. cares? I've got one more thing to say about comedy characters and it's very boring and it doesn't fit in the flow of the conversation I'm going to say anyway (laughs) um, (laughs) just a thought about the progression from Reign of Terror to here the the main comedy character in Reign of Terror is the jailer and I think when I was discussing that in another place we pointed out that it's quite Shakespearean that it's a low character who has been given the comic relief because in Shakespeare, you know, it's what he would do in one of his histories. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. You don't, for example, have that a funny king, porter. or indeed a funny Roman emperor mm. in a Shakespeare. Mm. Whereas here, the decision to make the funniest character the most powerful character is mm. unusual and uh, quite bold. Yes. And mm. suggests we move into a different genre. It could, you know, it's, it could be the first step away from the cod Shakespearean world of the Doctor Who historical. Hmm. Any balls. It's not. It's not comedy at all that makes it not not Shakespeare, pseudo Shakespearean. It's where you put it, and the way you treat mm. people <laughs> in different classes. There you go. I'm glad there I said it there. It sounded, it sounded quite clever, but it's not finished. It, it <laughs> <be honest. laughs> yeah. That would be one for that bloke. That bloke who gave us a review who said we're clever and we want you to know it. <laughs> what a swine! I don't think that's true at all. Well, just to yeah, just to just to bring it down with some bathos, though, isn't it? Um, I guess it was inspired by the fact that Derek Francis wanted to. Yeah, Derek Francis, I believe, actually came to them and said, "I'd like to be in Doctor Who," because he was a friend of oh. Jackie Hill and Alvin Rakoff. Okay, and presumably it's partly also inspired by uh, Carry On Cleo, mm. in which you have a very funny Roman Emperor indeed. Although that yes. wasn't out. At that point, though, was it? It was. Well, well if, it, if it wasn't out, then... Um... When Doctor Who was in production, Carry On Cleo was... Uh, I think Doctor Who was broadcast just before it came out. Ah, but, but... in the writing and production, it would have been ahead of Carry On Cleo. OK, well, the, produ- the production notes say that Spooner was a neighbour and friend of Jim Dale and went to the s- and saw them filming. Ah, went that, to the set. Okay. Yeah, so, it, it could it could well be yeah concurrent. Yeah, so I, I, had to, I think it's I had, I had to ditch my lengthy spiel about a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and yeah, and I, um, it was and, definitely inspired by that, no doubt about and it. And Greco-Roman farces and things like that, and and think, oh no, okay, it's just because Spooner went to the set of Cleo and mm. <laughs> and saw Kenny hamming it up. 
I think it's inspired by Up Pompeii. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Hang the Sorry, fuck no. on. <laughs> in a timey-wimey kind of way. Mm. Yes, that, that was the point I was making. I was naming mm, things yes. that were progressively further in the future <laughs> from the Romans. <laughs> well. On that theme, I do like the hypocrisy of the doctor in this. You know, from from the Aztecs saying you can't change history, not one line. Well, I guess what he's saying to Barbara is, you can't change history, not one line. <laughs> but I can do whatever I like. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give Hans Christian Andersen the story of the uh, Emperor's New Clothes, mm. and I'll also uh, give uh, Nero the, the idea of burning down Rome. In his defence, he didn't do it deliberately. Mm. So, I mean, he, it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been there. Yeah. But he didn't consciously change history. And Does that make it better or worse? Mm. Uh, <laughs> it makes it more confusing, definitely. And it's interesting that obviously, yeah, I'd forgotten that this comes up as, yeah, this will be echoed. You'd forgotten in, in the next, well, in the next story. I, I, hmm? I said you'd forgotten in a, an astonished voice, as if to imply that, that was the one thing I couldn't forget about that story. Right. And then, as I said it, I, re- I really I remembered that. I had forgotten that aspect of Fires of Pompeii, so I don't mm. know why I was. I mean, not I hadn't I hadn't forgotten all of the Fires of Pompeii. But no, I'd, indeed, I'd just forgotten the um the sort of the cause and effect element of it, mm. um, which what, will. What I th- that thought was really interesting. You were saying if that sit the the moment where Barbara smashes Ian on the head was a, a late addition and not part of the concept of the story, because that's a beautiful piece of parallel paralleling. If that's a word mm. within the context of the story that that the, the both the, the broad strokes and the minor character details are all about inconsequential actions and their their consequences and the doctor d- does this minor thing that that sets the events in motion through history accidentally and barbara has this uh, accidental smash on the head with ian that within their own personal stories nearly leads to death and slavery and all yeah. of this other stuff so um, I thought that was an interesting little thing, but it's more more curious. Just goes to show that some of the uh, contextual analysis that might be done, the the thought that goes into these things, can be wide of the mark if some of them are completely dreamt up in rehearsals for a bit of light fun. Or maybe William Rusland and Jackie the Hill were improvising in tune with the themes of the story that they'd yes. subconsciously picked up. That's quality mm, improvising. It. it wasn't just a, a bit of business. They, the, no. They so mm. they liked the scripts. They thought they, they got their synapses firing. Yeah, the the poso, the smashing the pot over the head thing, as the conclusion of the fight was always there. But it was one of the one of the slave traders that right. did it did it to do in Ian apparently. So they obviously ch- decided to um, switch it around there. So I was just a complete non sequitur, but also something that wanted to that I wanted to kind of go back on because we were talking about, okay, the evolution of comedy in Doctor Who and comedy Uh historicals in particular. And the thing I always think gets overlooked is that although Marco Polo is played pretty straight for most (laughs) of it, we have Mm. Kubla Khan in... And he's a, you know, he's he's not what we expect. And it's probably arguably one of the first times that Hartnell gets to play it for comedy as well in mm. his like two grumpy old men act in that i do find it interesting that from its very first cod historical story the show always seems to have had had its tongue at least partly in in cheek even when mm. it was doing what was otherwise more or less a boy's own 
boy's own adventure kind of thing. Mm. Thank you for mentioning that, because of course you just ruined my th- my point that the, uh, <laughs> the powerful figures are never the comic relief. Uh, <laughs> oh God, I have I'll have to retire and rethink that one. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just that in Doctor Who they are in in, in no other genre. Mm. Well, not in Shakespeare anyway. Was your point? Oh, somebody will be in in contact with a list as long as your arm is <laughs> contradicts me <laughs> you think you know so much Shakespeare you arrogant sod. you want us to think you're clever but we know <laughs> and also it has um, as you say it's fast paced but it it doesn't sacrifice that thing that a lot of the early historicals the, uh, the lengthy stories have which is that sometimes they bit a lot of characters along the way hmm. so I I've got another theory which is only half formed in the back of my mind, which is that mostly the science fiction stories are mostly set, don't move around as much in time. They're never set over long periods of time. They're never set geographically over long distances. They're never journey stories. And they tend to set up the cast at the beginning and stick with them. You know, there's a sort of <laughs> based on the siege in this about uh, all the sci fi ones. But it's the, it's the historicals that have this journey feel to them and mm. the travelogue feel and, and the epic quality that you get from i guess from the keys, from the as mm. i say the journey yeah that's an that's an exception very well, it's, well it's the exception that proves can you the rule, can you it's... mute giles please well <laughs> 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 oh, no i still, I, still th- I think you've got a point because all i'm trying is, to say is that i this is obviously the long ones like my like marco but i think um even though there's only four parts here it still mm. has that feeling of constantly moving on and yeah. some mm. characters minor characters disappear and new ones come in Mm. And it still feels a bit like a trek. And of course, they do move long distances. Don't mm. They? Mm. So he's kept that plotting style, but just sped it up a bit. Mm. As I say, half formed, half cocked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Keys of Mariners, get, you get a pass from Keys of Mariners, because although, although it attempts it, it makes a pig's ear of it and it's best ignored. I talk in generalisations, I see patterns mm. that aren't there. Mm. I should. <laughs> Why was there a um, a guy looking for galleon rowers in Assisi, mm. which mm. is about a hundred miles? Oh, it oh. is <laughs> That's... interesting question. That is another nod to Shakespeare, who famously, and you said a little about geography, that <laughs> all his seafaring stories are set in land and vice versa. Two gentlemen yeah. of Verona. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Assisi is one of the few places I, I have actually been to, and uh, I, I can confirm it's not very close to the sea. Mm. <laughs> Just sounds like it should should be. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Mm. I'm not going to attempt to do an Italian accent now. <laughs> we don't want that. Yeah, the other odd blunder sort of you know plot hole that I can see is. Is what the hell is going on with is it Subterio, the uh, the the slave trader who then becomes he's in charge of the gladiators at the circus and who then seems to become Nero's all-purpose gopher and and he he jumps through the story so he, yeah. he's he's there throughout and yes he gives us continuity but on the other hand well you you know I mean it's it's hard to to, to scrape a living as as a slave trader so I guess you've got to have a couple of other sidelines <laughs> in your back pocket. <laughs> Writing for Big Finish. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I do I do like the uh, the rhubarbing we get from the extras when they're lighting their torches. I think mm. it's it, it's one of the one of the best uh, <laughs> uh, efforts in, in in early Doctor Who. That I have to go back and listen to that again. Yeah, I, I noticed that. It was so conspicuously rhubarbing. <laughs> there was some good crowd noise in like the banquet scene and things like that. I'm sure, mm. BBC sound effects records were in full force. But there was that one scene when, uh, yeah, it reminded me of Blackhead of the Third. I mean, we don't have to keep aggressively mining this for, for no. thinner and thinner morsels if, if, if we have, in fact... Oh, it's tr- it's traditional. Yeah. <laughs> don't know what I think of this, then. Go on, then. <laughs> you think I don't want to pour water on everyone's fun. Just didn't get on with it. Right. I always found it tedious, and I found mm. it tedious today. <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay. Well, I found it. I found it a chore to watch. After that first five minutes, where the time jumped ahead, mm. I just found it tiresome, stilted, under rehearsed, badly written, mm. jarring, annoying, <laughs> egregiously, whatever you said earlier, Paul. No, that's a slight uh, exaggeration for comic effect. But I. I uh, yeah, I did. I did find it frustrating, and I found the attempts at comedy fell flat, and the business annoyed me. And uh, maybe I was just in a bad mood. <laughs> I have seen it before. It's been many years since I seen it all the way through. Because last time I tried watching it, I gave up. So I don't know. It's just it seemed under rehearsed. I thought. I, yeah, I'll give you that. But I, I think it goes back partly to what you were saying, Paul, about some of the intricacies really could only have worked on film. There's a lot of comedy physical moments that yes if you'd had weeks and weeks of rehearsals they they could have gone off without a hitch on 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 uh, as live and maybe we wouldn't have had so many close-up shots of barry jackson's ass if, uh... <laughs> <laughs> i think it's uh, a risk giving um perfectly timed punchlines to william hartnell i think there were a few <laughs> of those that i wasn't going to mention it it, yeah, it, it is an early an early uh, example of him chewing over his lines rather badly in some places. It's yeah, true. There's, mm. there's one or two times he just completely picks the wrong word. I don't know. It. I found, I found the hard hitting stuff, the the slavery and the just the perils that people were in, for me made mm. the comedy more jarring because it wasn't comedy in the face of adversity. It was different genre to those other scenes and I think I think Doctor Who does comedy and drama together very well at the best of times but I think that's not the same as as having a serious story and putting some wacky stuff in it and that's what this felt like to the point where like we were saying that the actors punching it up in rehearsals increased more and more the amount of wacky stuff that was afoot I don't know I just I found the balance didn't work for me and I found some of the farcical scenes were so clumsily written and, and perhaps deliberately so but it, it just made the drama it just made it was more frustrating because the dra- the dramatic parts had been nicely done so the bit when the, the doctor is explaining the plot to basically the camera and the other chap whose name I've instantly forgotten says yes yes I know all that and it's uh, <laughs> I love like, that yes uh, but well, yeah, yeah then, hmm. It's just... Did you not laugh out loud at that bit? Me? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I might have been, I might have been uh, laughing at something. I, it's, it's, 
I don't know. It's. It, it, I just found it. It felt like a clash of styles. It. It didn't feel like witty dialogue seamlessly inserted. Yeah. Because the the tough stuff was written and played seriously. So when the ridiculous moments are dialed up, it, you just think these are these are people from a different universe to the ones that were just in fear of their lives five minutes ago. These are ones that that can't see what's going on in front of them for comic effect and say things that no normal human would say and they're saying it for comic effect and i i find it hard to take that on board when i'm also trying to empathize with people who are worried about being sold into slavery and mm. that kind of thing but but generally i just didn't i d- i don't get on with the hor- historicals at the best of times but I, I yeah i just found it tiresome i was waiting for it to finish and i'm sorry i mean it's got it's got a similar arc in that regard to the crusade in that ian and barbara have a have a kind of pretty torrid time of it all the way through, whilst the Doctor and Vicky just sort of giggle and uh, mm. chat away to each other and have a rather fun caper through history. Yeah, and you've funny got, that, you've, you've, you've got those two kind of strands of the kind of horror and, and the real kind of blood and thunder in one on the one hand, and um, yeah, the very light caper on the other, and, and well, ju- juxtaposed together, I suppose. Mm. I think you can still have light and funny stuff within this within a story. Because life can be comedy and tragedy by turns. Yes. But I think what I, I struggle with is when the, the nature of the, the style switches so abruptly that it's not sort of in-universe comedy. That sounds really dreadful. Right. But um, So abrupt that only an actor of the stand of Michael Peake can, can <laughs> cope with it. I, I could talk about this all night, but of course but I'm not going to. Thank goodness for that. All I can say is I hope Gav is still here when we get to the Mythmakers because that would be a good opportunity to have part two. Mm. I should prepare my riposte to this because that would be the ideal place for it. I think the thing I was just going to say with regards to that is because I've always looked on this as being, to some extent, there's, there's more tongue-in-cheek. And even, even in some of the moments of peril, I mean, it's just like things of the stock footage of the lions. <laughs> it's just like, hang on, no, this is this has got to be exaggerated for comic effect. And then you have the, the caption with Roma... Like, that comes up and yeah. yes, and all of these references to sword and sandal type rather rather silly sword and sandal kind of scenarios is you know and I think it feels to me like it's kind of operating a bit more wittily and that we're not necessarily meant to take everything. I think it's personal preference. I don't think we. Yeah, I don't think we is. disagree yeah. on what it's trying to do, but I mm. I quite like that and I like the fact that it's one of the styles. Mm. Or indeed the mixed styles that Doctor Who has in its arsenal. Mm. And I understand, I can entirely understand what other people don't. It's it's funny, although although it has this high reputation today, it didn't seem to go down all that well with the audiences again. At the time, there seemed to be some fairly negative reaction amongst surveys and things like that. Would you like me to read you a quote from the audience... uh... (laughs) Oh, I love love the pompous way the 1960s audience people express themselves. (laughs) More reviews. <laughs> this program gets more and more bizarre. In fact, it's so ridiculous, it's a bore. <laughs> Doctor Who is suitable only for morons. <laughs> you, you wait 50 years. That's, 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 sorry, is that Ian Levine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think the general public... The BBC audience the sort of people who, for The sort of people who like coming forward with their opinions. I don't think they ever liked comedy in Doctor Who until City of Death. And that may well have been the only time they ever did. <laughs> but um, mm. certainly that's the thing that seems to annoy them most. 
<laughs> mm. Oh well. Well, you'll like the next one because there's no laughs in that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so, there's on. at least a spaceship in it. Mm. <laughs> one last yeah. thing on this. Anyone got any comments yes. on the the novelization? Because the the oh. odd thing that I noticed is, of course, that that uh, Donald Cotton ended up doing the novelization. I guess by default because Spooner was no longer with us by the time they got round to it, and he's and Donald Cotton mm. had obviously done. Everyone a, had loved his first two novels, hadn't they? A couple of other or comedic least... Doctor Who's. So I think the um yeah. I haven't Just, read it recently enough to. No. I remember Doctor Who magazine were disappointed with it and said it all made sense on paper giving it to him, but what a balls up he's made of it. That's what they said, I think. Gary <laughs> Russell. Okay. <laughs> I, I I've never read it. Um so I must have done, mm. but I. Don't. He takes the. I think it he does it in the epistolary form, or indeed the epistolary form, whichever mm. it is. What does that mean? Uh, the ex- hey, well, it's a load of letters. Yes, it's a load of letters. Well, they're all a load of letters, aren't they? Generally, eight to <laughs> jumbled up. <laughs> oh, very quick. <laughs> oh, I see. I've got. I've got the jokes. I've got all the jokes. You can move on now. Did they all arrive in one go? Were they buffering? Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> yep. I had no idea what was yeah. happening there, and then it all hit me. <laughs> We've got all the right letters, but not necessarily the right order. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> we got an hour out of it somehow, even without going into iCollectives. I was going to mention it in relation to The Poisoner. The um, I was, I was right. going to oh, say yes. that most of the humour is, um, well, apart from the farce, little... A lot of fast, little wordplay, but uh, quite a lot of um, low-level social satire. But again, not that far above what you'd expect in in Crackerjack. The idea of having a funny poisoner. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I might yet mention that because I've got something else to say about that. I I think we we may have lost our younger audience with the whole Crackerjack thing. Crackerjack. Good. <laughs> Actually, isn't it, isn't it back on? I think. Yeah, but not with Peter Glaze. For, a very, for a very younger audience. Ed Stewart. I never saw Cracker Jack. <laughs> I don't Cracker know Jack. Jack. Lucky you. Well, yeah, you, you missed nothing. What were you doing on Friday at 5 to 5? <laughs> what year? <laughs> 1958 to 86, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it was like that. 86, I'd have been 5, so uh, not, not yeah. really watching oh, good Lord. much. I think that's probably about when I started. With Ed Stewpot. Ed Stewart's yeah. Stewpot, he was good. Yeah. Uh, dear. I hadn't realised how much Gav was bringing down our average age. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Never recovered from Stu Francis. Presumably he's a cousin of um, Derek Francis, was he? <laughs> okay, well, shall we shall we move on to Fires of Pompeii? Let's do it. Written by James Moran and directed by Colin Teague. Yeah, there's a name to conjure mm. with. Uh, uh, indeed. And, and famous, I suppose, uh, among other things for its early appearances of Karen Gillan and Peter Capaldi. Mm. Um, Quite startling in, with hindsight, isn't it? In the Who-niverse. Well, I say with hindsight, as if it would have been... There would have been no yeah. reason for it to be startling at the time. What a stupid, otiose <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> I, I wonder... I wonder how many times you think that I might have watched this since... 19, uh, sorry, 2008. Uh, mm. Zero. <laughs> really? 
Yeah, this this was in fact the, the first time I watched it since no. its original broadcast. Ast- Which is astonishingly. famous for that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you just humouring wow. it? <laughs> we, w- w- why why is that? He hates all Doctor Who and the new series more than, more than most. He doesn't well, hate the Romans as much as I do, so you know, some disparity. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, I, I don't know. I, I watch these things once and I get a fair idea of what they're like, and I don't have any particular hurry to, to watch them again. But but you know, I quite enjoy. Do you mean the new series? No, I mean I mean stuff Doctor in general. Who in general. I, when I was a boy, I watched. <laughs> I watched Doctor Who incessantly. I mean, I probably watched The Visitation ten or fifteen times. Probably seen Earth, Earthshock twenty times. Uh, the Five Doctors like probably seen teens of times. Yeah. But but all of that was was before I before I left my parents' home before I went away. And then, but since then, you know, I I I, I doubt I've watched Doctor Who more than two or three times and, and most of the new series I've only I've only watched once. Mm. And it's it's just time really, you know. I, as we've already established, I'm a bit of a meta Doctor Who fan in that I spend more time watching and reading stuff about Doctor Who than actually watching and, and talking Doctor about Who it. Itself. Bloody hell! Yeah, well, there is that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, there we go. It, not even the fact that it's from the best season of Doctor Who ever has encouraged you to go back. to Well, it, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll discover that as we as we work our way through it over the next few years. Gav, I was trying to encourage Gav to carry on and pretend I didn't interrupt him. I was just going to launch into a sideways thing about the, the the nonsense we tell ourselves about making making time for things oh we haven't got time oh. for these things oh dear because i was thinking to myself you know the books i haven't interrupted. read and i wasn't what i was watching the tomorrow people this morning I mean, <laughs> yeah <laughs> time is relative isn't it yeah. we, we make we make time if we care it is one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves isn't it? Yeah. time oh, God, extends I'm massively I'm when, you're, when, when you're watching the tomorrow people <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> well it's, why why I do it. I, it's why I always manage to watch these shows before we sit down and do the podcast because I kind of feel like I have to, uh, you know, can have a proper conversation with you. And I, you know, I invariably enjoy it when I do it. But if I, if we weren't doing a podcast, I'm sure I wouldn't have watched the Fires of Pompeii. Um, I I'm reasonably sure I'll have seen Fires of Pompeii probably half a dozen times within the first two or three years it was broadcast, okay. but I haven't seen it in at least five years so it was right. it's, it's always an interesting thing when when something's been overly familiar to you at some point in your life and you know it backwards and forwards and then you come back to it after a period of time and your brain has changed <laughs> so everything you know the beats and everything but it's all new so that was the experience I had this evening which was very enjoyable to to have both that feeling of what I thought I felt about it and 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 how I felt afresh but at that time, 2008, mm-hmm. Doctor Who was still so new and exciting, and I was absolutely 100% a new series fan and was all over rumours and speculation and trailers and rewatching. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me rewatching this was being reminded of the level of excitement for the hints to the arc story, the mention of something on Donna's back and. Mm. Uh, Oh yeah. The uh, the the throw forwards. She is returning as well. There was the mention of, uh, and that that build up to the end of series four was just so exciting. And I think my favourite period of the new series, with possible exception of the end of series two. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was I was so strongly reminded of 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 how important Doctor Who was to me at that time in two thousand eight. Mm. 
series three for me. I'd forgotten there were two running threads, one of which pays off in the you know in, with the Dalek thing mm. <laughs> and um, Return of Rose, but the thing on Donna's back is like a secondary mm. throw forward, isn't it? Which mm. is all over and done with <sighs> long before the series ends. That's one of my favourite bits. I was waiting for that. I was waiting mm. for um, what his name now. Yeah, him. who is it? Phil, Phil Davis. Davis. Okay. I was waiting for that. I was waiting for Phil Davis <laughs> to say it in his Phil Davis voice. And he does it very well. Even though he hasn't yeah. got the faintest idea what he's talking about. <laughs> that's yeah. that's acting. I used to send a shiver up my up all down my spine. Oh, the direction is immaterial. It was the shiver mm. that was uh, in the place where it's not supposed to be. That was the important point. I mean, it would be weird if it went sideways. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. And then I thought, put yourself together. You're on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, you, to be honest, uh, there's Leave almost it to Gav to make such two, observation. That scene almost gets a big bogged down in. Um, in I'm going to keep calling throw forwards because you came up with that phrase, and I haven't got a better one. But it, it isn't. But it almost is. <laughs> yeah, the fact that um, it spends several minutes going on about the future before returning the story at hand mm. should shouldn't work, mm. but it does because it's series four of Doctor Who. I'd be interested to see James Moran's draft versus. Uh, Russell's rewrite. There's some of it in the writer's tale, and it's fascinating. If you haven't, if you haven't seen those sections, that's that's a real eye opener. My instinct was that there was a bit of it in uh, James Moran's draft, and and Russell Davies saw he was onto a good thing, hmm. and really accentuated it, and could visualise a director going to town on it, hmm. and Murray Gold's music uh, rising, and and that scene really paying off i think that is the standout scene of the of the episode and it's inconsequential really i mean it is beautiful because you know going into that point you're thinking you know silly old superstitious so-and-sos with their vapors and whatever and it mm. what do they know about anything and suddenly you think oh, mm. oh i see you mm. know it, it, it I hadn't expected that to happen, and of course I hadn't expected it to happen because I'd forgotten it this time around from 2008. So it was a, it was a surprise this time as well. Have you forgotten what the payoff is? Have you completely forgotten about the thing on the back, and where the bees are going, and who's mm. returning? No, I've. Well, we, if you remember, we watched, you? Oh, we, oh. we watched Turn Left together not very many uh, oh, yes. years ago for the, for this podcast. So I have seen that. Oh yes. <laughs> Nobody uh, knows where the bees are going. No, that's true. And we get the disappearing planet comes in later, doesn't it? The Paravilia yeah. vanishing yeah. planets. Would anyone have any objection if we talked a bit about the script now, or do you think it's too early? No, go on. Because go on. I remember reading that um, excerpt from James Moran's original draft in The Writer's Tale, and uh, it made me think a lot of things at the time, but I think I should let Gav tell, him, tell us what he thinks about it first, because I think he's read it more recently, and he may be coherent on the subject. I well, I mean, it's a few years since I read it. Oh, okay, shut up. Go for it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, please, carry on. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to articulate it without doing Mr. Moran a disservice, but it. You thought that the, the page of his script was dog shit, and <laughs> it was extremely unkind of Russell to reproduce it. No, but that I he thought... obviously couldn't resist showing us just what he had to deal with week after week after week, <laughs> and. He wanted his heroic efforts in saving these scripts to be appreciated in a way that they would otherwise not be. It's not precisely what I thought. Oh. <laughs> I thought I thought it was good, and then I read Russell's rewrite, and I thought, ah, that's the mark of a genius. Is is that's it, why he gets everything. paid the big money. 
yeah, yeah. It, it there was I thought there was nothing wrong with the original till I read the rewritten version and then That's I a, thought oh oh what yeah. what 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 are any of us doing when Russell's well, just going to take the words you thought were perfectly serviceable and just put better ones there that do the same job that's exactly what i thought yeah and yet that leads me on to various other questions and trains of thought which aren't really specific to the fires of pompeii so he punches up the dialogue of all the writers so they reach a certain standard but he also frankly makes them sound more like him Mm. there's not as much room for different voices stylistic voices in modern who are there as there are in the old days for better or for worse I guess it's for better if all you want is each week the words coming out of the actors' mouths to be as good and as, as entertaining and well-chosen and well-turned as possible. With the unmistakable voice of Stephen Moffat being the exception, who I believe is the only writer who was not rewritten by Russell T. Davis. True. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. So it was... It but I think that really shows. Yeah. So... A good save, because, of course, I didn't mean to imply that Russell rewrote these scripts purely for egotistical reasons, because he couldn't bear anything to not sound like it had come from him. But what what are you going to do if you're writing it because you think it's it could... You can see that it could be better. You're not mm. cruelly saying, well, I've, mm. I've drawn a theoretical line, a bar, and you haven't ri- risen above it. Mm. You just know it can be better, so that's what you're being paid for, to make it, to get it there. Mm. Well, presumably Terence Dix was doing something similar, you know, and Robert Holmes as well, well all those years ago. Certainly, I mean, maybe not, maybe not quite so so much, but it's a tricky one. Do you think? Do you? I, I can't feel. My assumption would be that in those days, most of the rewrites were because the plots weren't there, not because the dialogue was not sparkling. Because it often wasn't. If you're looking at Terence Dix rewriting stuff, was it always sparkling in the finished result? I I get the feeling they were firefighting so much because the stories made no sense. That's what they concentrate on, rather than gagging it up. And I don't wish to imply that all Russell did was gag it up, even though I appeared to just say that. <laughs> Terry Nation's drafts are some of the, if not the only ones that we have access to, so they're the, really the only ones that we can perform analysis on draft scripts versus rewrites, oh. uh, versus rehearsal scripts and camera scripts. David Whittaker, for example, uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth, does a lot of structural changes. But there are also arbitrary changes to dialogue, which usually have a rationale of some kind because they're, they're kind of very slightly tweaking either character development or, or, or motivation or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things reading the master plan rewrites, I was quite surprised how often there were completely arbitrary changes to chunks of dialogue. There are often whole paragraphs that Terry Nation wrote that Donald Tosh rewrote to say exactly the same thing yeah. In a in in exactly the same way but in a different order of words. Right. And and there's quite a lot of that. I mean, yeah, stylistically you can feel a bit more Terry Nation in the original, but I would be hard pressed to say a lot of it was a stark improvement. I mean, he, you know, he's he's not fashioning brilliance out of raw material. It's it's all still very I was going to say workmanlike, but he's not turning lead into gold. Yeah, exactly. He's turning yeah. two semi-precious metals into... <laughs> he's, he's swapping form. between two semi-precious metals. That's yeah. what I should have said. But yeah, when I when I implied that all that was happening was gagging it up, what I meant to say, of course, was that whatever the, whatever the thrust of a scene is, whatever emotional peak it's going for, you can chisel the dialogue to get it there, whether it's to make it more exciting or funnier or sadder mm. or clearer. So many reasons why you might want to fiddle with something. 
th- this script also, because of production restraints, had to be written in record time. So uh, part of the reason that James Moran was chosen... Sorry, I don't know if it's Moran or Moran. Apologies. You can, you can edit it so one is correct after you've researched it. <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it both ways every time. I, I think you're confusing name, us with some other it. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Moran. Apologies, Mr. Moran. I completely forgot. Doctor what I was Who about. is only suitable for James Morans. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so James Moran was chosen because it was believed that he could produce drafts very, very quickly, and that he would be happy producing a draft that would then be treated as such as a draft and and finalized by by Russell T Davis so ah right it's reasonable to suppose that you know as we know in the writing process finishing the first draft is often the hardest part because once everything's down on the page you can start to reshape that mm. and if he was happy to get to a point where he had produced a draft and then and then Russell was uh, chiseling away at it. Then, then that makes sense. Mm. So I, yeah, but I, I, I know from speaking to some that d- d- different writers felt differently about uh, yeah. having their scripts rewritten. And that could be because that wasn't the deal they signed up to. Yeah, but it could partly explain why James Moran, Mor, 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 Moran, was so gracious about um, being mm. rewritten. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. having it, yeah, because having his extracts in the book. It doesn't need any, it doesn't obviously need an explanation other than the fact that he's a professional. Mm-hmm. So that, that leads me on to the other thing I was going to say, so I haven't quite finished, because it wasn't just the dialogue. It, there were ma- quite major changes to the story itself, the structure, and even the ideas behind it. I and mean, didn't Russell completely introduce the Paravans? There were no monsters in the story before, in the original draft. Do we know, has anyone checked on this? Because that's what I remember reading at the time. And that is the sort of thing that surprises me more because that's the sort of thing where I feel like if the if the plot structure isn't right, never mind the basic ideas you've committed to building a story around, you'd think mm. that would show up a lot earlier on before somebody's spent mm-hmm. an extremely long time fashioning words, mm. putting words onto the skeleton of this story that you'd think have been agreed. I mean, a big finish, we have to write a plot outline, and of course they mm. do on the TV show as well. So... Why is it they, they sometimes can't see problems that are that fundamental mm. until the dialogue is there? That's what has always exercised me. If I were responsible for creating the pyrophiles, I don't think I'd be making a big song and dance about <laughs> it. Mm. They're about the most generic aliens, I think, that you could imagine. That would be the next question I'd ask, which is that if, you know, if the original version didn't have any monsters, Russell is not the sort of person... He's not John Nathan Turner saying this story is all very well, but it needs some monsters in it, which gives mm. us a magma beast. Well, I, well, well, if this, oh, but this I, is a not, magma beast. Ironically, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that's an important thing. He made sure there was a monster every week on Sarah Jane, regardless of budgetary yeah. constraints. Mm. It was a pretty critical thing, I think. Looking at Sharon Patrick Sullivan's website, and it does suggest that Moran, as we shall call him, came up with the Paravillatraxians, as they originally were. Right. So uh, so it was always a story about lava monsters that lived in a volcano. Uh, that's that I don't know. We don't and that's I can only see that he named that. I, I, there's no particular detail on It makes much more sense because the alternative is that the showrunner commissioned a script that didn't have any monsters in when it was a 
an absolute deal breaker, non-negotiable, that it should have monsters in. That doesn't make any sense. So I'm pleased to discover that didn't happen. And listen, completely making, imagining things. We have had incidents in the new series where people have basically been told there's no budget for a monster, and then, ah, yes, well, the monster in the Satan pit, for instance. Is that famously a case of last minute? Oh, yes, we do have budget for. They couldn't work for monster out after what all. should be at the bottom of the pit. That was a late. That was the late yes, decision right. yes, that they were writing it without. But I'm pretty sure we've had cases where they have decided, no, hang on, we need a monster. I think in the Satan Pit, wouldn't that basically mean you didn't have to restructure mm. the entire story? You could just mm. change those last few scenes when it shows up. Whereas here, it's a different story yeah. if there aren't lava monsters mm. under <laughs> the suit. Under the volcano. Well, the, I guess the, the brief was originally that, OK, Pompey and that Russell wanted him to do a story about the moral dilemma, as it were, yeah. facing the Doctor about whether you, whether you do something about this, whether you intervene. So and I guess it's a a retread of the Aztecs, etc., for that period. But quite how much of that, obviously, there were a, there were aliens involved. Because you could have had that same anything. whole story without the rampaging monsters. You could still have had the mm. pyroviles with the woman turning to stone and their influence under the mountain and everything else. It might just have been... This was what I was the, wondering, the, the whether this was the original. monsters. Some sort a non-corporeal yeah. sort of threat. Because he might have in- this invented that. This is what I was that. wondering, whether that might have been the yeah. origin. Mm. We don't know. It's well, a long debate on something we have literally no idea if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> one, one reason I'm harping on about it is because I've, I remember thinking first on first viewing that it was the least successful section. It's only about mm. five or six minutes, isn't it? But I just thought, oh, what a shame this was... Is on course for a ten. Which out bit? Of 10. When they go under the, the when they go into the well, into I base, guess yeah, the yeah. monster base, the water. Yeah, when it goes bit. Doctor Whoey, because mm. we've had such wonderful. Yeah. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, yes, we've had. It one turns into then, a green screen um, realm. Yeah. I've enjoyed all the jokes. And I've enjoyed all the moral yeah. conundrums and quandaries mm. supremely before then. And I j- was just it's the sort of bit that make, reminds me that I'm probably yeah. not the age this program yeah. is is aimed at, because I'm now thinking, oh, I don't, I'm bored with this. Can I get back to the the grown-up stuff, please. So maybe that's the answer. I think it acquits itself quite well in that sequence. I, 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 I was watching it and thinking, oh, I like all the heat haze and the, the fact they've remembered to make everything shimmery and it's a superficial thing. But it, uh, I thought, okay, that comes over quite well. A nice shot of Phil Days through quite the haze. Phil Days, Phil Davis. Phil Davis in the days and in I, the haze. And I'm, I'm glad that he speaks for them and that they don't suddenly start speaking it. Like the tractators, all over again. Although the trade-off is that they feel weirdly underrepresented as a as a culture. You know, we're getting everything secondhand through other people saying what they're up to, what they're keen on, what they want, and they Mm -hmm. are the big threat. That you know, they're they're talking about extinguishing the human race or converting the whole of the human race, and we get all the backstory of the disappeared planet, which pays off in the stolen Earth and. And all of that, mm. but it's all relayed through other people yes. standing around saying, "Oh, the, these are the aliens yeah. over here, and this is what they're up to." But I'm not. I'm not saying. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you that it, it wasn't better yeah. for it yeah. that Phil but Davies tells us. They're only there for five minutes. So, um, what is the answer to either? Not, I mean, are we saying the answer is either to not have them at all, or to make this a two-parter so we can actually look into their culture and actually give a shit? About well, them? to be honest, I mean, the thing that I wrote was after some exposition, they escape into the volcano for a bit more exposition. I mean, it, it hmm. isn't as you say; it's the, it's the most tedious part of the episode because all you're getting is a load of people spouting about stuff that you don't really care about. 
and, and we know they're going to they're get splattered in a minute anyway. It's a bit late to introduce the, the, even the possibility that we might there might be another moral conundrum that we might yes. actually have to care about these monsters yes. because they've lost their planet. Mm. And and the story knows that because it raises that possibility, and then the Doctor asks the right questions and discovers that the whole human race is at, the whole planet Earth and human race mm. is at stake. So he doesn't have to. So he can throw that out again. I don't have to worry about you lot yes. because you're going to commit genocide. I thought it was a fascinating parallel to the forthcoming, well, not forthcoming at that point, years in the future day, the Doctor, that he has that button to press yes. to sacrifice hmm. X number of people to save X million more, and that he went hmm. through that same moral process in question. And I, and and actually that that same imagery is present finally in Day of the Doctor, where they all put their hmm. hands on in a show of solidarity to press the button together. Uh, I thought that was rather, um, rather fascinating. I wonder if that if that imprints itself on Moffat's mm. mind, and it actually was a, a homage. Because it's all because because that that's brought up, isn't it? Is that somebody says you because doesn't Donna say your planet burned? Yeah. To try to uh, elicit a response from him. And considering that we later get a flashback to Capaldi's character here. Yes. As the explanation for why the Doctor yeah. chooses his oh, face, yes, of course, mm. yeah. because because this moment meant so much to him. The, the time that he remembered that saving one life mm. was important, and I'm that mm. kind of man, or whatever. But considering that it was worth a flashback there, it might have been worth a flashback in yes. Day of the Doctor. If we'd, mm. I'm not saying it should have been, but maybe this moment, and it is a big moment because it's a fixed point. Yeah, you in time, correctly isn't it? mentioned that. Mm. Didn't just crowbar that when we, in. When we looked at Waters of Mars, you remembered that this was where it originated. Mm. Yeah, astonishing. Did I? I thought I got it wrong, and somebody else corrected me. Oh, well, no, I'll, I'll take that. Yes, it was I don't me. want to blow. I, I don't remember. want to blow my own trumpet. I thought it was yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, Are you sure it wasn't me. It was. I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> I talked for about an hour on how Waters and Mars right. invented the mm. concept of uh, fixed points in time, and then Giles, as usual, squirted his water. Isn't the Great Fire of Rome a fixed point in history? I'm sure the Doctor says something yeah. about it. Mm. Well, quite. <laughs> There are so there are quite a few links between these two stories that not just classical Italy and mm. the Roman Empire. One of mm. them is fixed points in time, or things that wouldn't have happened if the Doctor hadn't turned up, which may or may not be the same. That's the thing. third one. Who knows? And the, I'm not going to tell what the fourth one is until the end because I need to save one because I like to ninja it, all with an amazing it, link. Is it reference spotted. to ants in honey? No, it, it's fire. Yeah. So clever. Yeah. <laughs> oh damn! You tricked me. I've got to think about the fifth one now. Oh, I have to fall back and answer, honey. Not literally. Here's here's my summary. So tell me if you think that this this is a bit kind of unfair. I've sort of said it's it's a B movie plot with a B movie alien menace, but but it does make a more important human point about life and a story point about fixed outcomes, which we're going to come back to, you know, in a year's time. Is that what it is, or is it is it better than that? Not bad. Not a bad encapsulation. Mm. I mean, there are, you've, you've mentioned that there's some really good stuff at the start. There's, there's, there's excellent, you know, building of that culture, but it feels like around about the halfway point, it just becomes a little bit more, well, run around. I suppose it, if it's inevitably Doctor Who does. You, yeah, you, you have seen Doctor <laughs> Who before, haven't <laughs> <laughs> It's funny until we until we started. I feel slightly. <laughs> Slightly sheepish about admitting this now, but well, not not until we started tonight. But until I until I went and you know did a little bit of you know my minimal background reading that I do before these, I had completely forgotten that this wasn't actually a Russell T Davis right script. 
through, oh, right. through because I in your head it in my head like it that. it just felt like it was so integral to so much of what yeah. he then does with the back half of series four and mm. in the specials you know so stuff about fixed points in time the whole sort of time of Victoria's interfe- mm. interfering you know what happens with Lindsay Duncan versus saving the Cecilia Caecilius see how we Kais- how are we going to Kais- pronounce that the Moran, Moran family and um, yeah, it, it felt like it was so integral, but of course it's not quite there in terms of the actual. You know, it doesn't spark quite as much as as Russell's stuff does on on its own. Usually, Gav, you were saying regarding the fact that he approached Moran, yeah, because there was the understanding of that this was like, can you know, we need someone to get a draft down on paper on the understanding it's going to be. Rewritten was that what were the motivations behind that? Was that because of the Cinecita filming? And they were originally looking at a Mark Gatiss uh, Nazi story, and that was slated for this slot. And then they decided it was oh, a bit right. too people. <laughs> <laughs> wrong with fans and uh, <laughs> was that the, the british museum one yeah. i don't know mm. but they decided mm. it was too close to the empty child to retread second world war so okay russell fell back on the idea he'd had the idea of a pompeii story since 2005 it was it was right. one of the bunch that he'd written mm. he very oh, nearly that. wanted yeah. to do it yeah. for episode nine or ten of series one uh, but there just wasn't the budget to do mm. anything so that ended up being boomtown which had to be mm. a money-saving one mm. so this pompeii idea was parked and then they started looking at the nazi story then they decided to drop the nazi story then they looked at whether there was any financially viable way that they could shoot a a decent looking rome story and that's when they looked at the shinashita mm. studios and worked out that yes that would be because that they that those studios were very keen to promote their uh, facilities to british studios so they worked out a very uh, very good deal for them to to shoot there very nearly all went badly wrong because there was ironically a fire at the studios um just before production people were killed and um four people died um but they were able to um bring it under control and the bit the doctor who was scheduled to shoot on was not damaged but um that was pretty tragic Mm. in the midst of all that so yeah, so they 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 went ahead with that, and James James Moran was was chosen on the basis that um, I, th- I think um, I think he'd done impressive work at short notice for Torchwood, which had had the same director, mm. right? Teague, and yeah. so yeah, those two were. Re- I think they changed the running order as well because I think um, I, I think it was in the there was a bit of a, a writing crisis that I think's documented in the writer's tale because Russell was trying to trying to sort out partners in crime he's trying to introduce reintroduce donna uh, and they ended up mm-hmm. pushing partners in crime back so that he could work on Pfizer pompeii first and lump them in the same production block yeah don't know what your question was but i hope it was yeah. answered in that <laughs> rambling monologue what? yeah just regards of what the background of that rush commission was and so there was a logical logical reason why it was always going to be understood that it was probably going to have some pretty heavy rewrites yeah, 
and I guess some some stuff around the studios and what was available as well. With, yeah, with all these things, I think he would rather not have to do mm. rewrites because I mean he was pretty much rewriting every single mm. episode, wasn't he? Not always from the ground up, but uh, an awful lot on most of them. So presumably, without him, we wouldn't have had um, running jokes like the uh, Celtic accent thing. Yeah, that was that was funny. <laughs> that I, I like that. Gav won't because it was a it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like fun. Um, <laughs> it's got no place in my life. Yeah, it's interesting that because it feels like Donna's the right companion to be in this place making that argument. If they had mm. had it in, if they if it had ended up in series one, I'm not entirely sure the moral dilemma like Rose would have necessarily had the heft to engage with that because there's yeah there's all, so everyone's <laughs> just in terms of the the relationship the the Doctor Rose relationship is is very different from the you know from the tenth Doctor Donna one. Oh God! What's that line she comes out with when he tells her to shut up? And she says, "I don't know what sort of children you've been hanging yes, around exactly. with. You're not yes. telling me to shut up." Oh, and I and I love the fact that it sort of goes from you know that that it does this thing of having it's the unfortunate predestination paradox, as it were, and that Donna then becomes yeah, as we already touched on again, it feels like okay, Donna's the one who is well suited to taking responsibility to helping him go through with it if it needs doing. I think. For me, it works particularly well because it's her, not just because mm. I love the character, but I think it's kind of unexpected. One thing I remember thinking about season four is everybody, well, no, not everybody, a lot of people, and particularly the people who didn't like Catherine Tate or Donna and just thought this was going to turn the program into a sort of pantomime, I got the impression that in the writing they went out of their way to say, aha, she's not just a mm. trivial character. And Catherine Tate is not just a comedy actress. She can do mm. the big emotional stuff. And they gave her so much big emotional stuff in the first few episodes, particularly here and again. And is this part episode three, is it? This is two, and then Planet of the Ood is Two, and then Ood is the three. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So it's very early on. They want us to know that. Because mm. obviously episode one is very much screwball comedy and retreading some of the beats we've had with Runaway Bride with great success, more successfully, I would argue. Yes. That's all very well argued. I like the first scene where the Doctor and Donna have their argument about where they can change things. It's very brisk and economically written and gets through all the arguments that we that took the whole of the Aztecs. There's not mm. a criticism. But it does get through that whole thing much more quickly and clearly. Mm. And it's good that they have that early on so they can they can both be thinking about it, both characters. They can be simmering, and the audience indeed, can be simmering away in the background. Mm. Um, in terms of the moral dilemma, you point out that it's a predestination paradox, which the Doctor doesn't just have to decide whether to save... He's arrived at the scene of a major disaster, mm. a natural disaster, as we thought. His choice is not just whether or not saving everybody would be causing too much of a shift in history. Mm. It's that he caused it in the first place. Mm. Are we supposed? Uh, that's a sort of science fiction idea, isn't it? Like, um, reminds me of Father's Day, where, mm. though that's... Only vaguely in history because it's like set ten years ago. It's well, it's Day of the Daleks, it, isn't it? Don't, you know, don't you realise? Well, yeah. Yes. The pyrophiles, you did it yourself. I'm just working something through here. Is that it, fundamentally important to this story that it has that the reason he can't change it is because he's he caused it and he's a part of this story. It's not just because it's an important moment. Because later on in in the um, Waters of Mars, hmm. 
it's not a pre it's, it's, you can't it's not a fixed point because of any kind of paradox it's just an important point this is such an important thing that like she has to die he he doesn't know though does he till till no, exactly. they no. get the exposition he, dump in the uh, escape pod but when he says mm. he can feel it he can see that it's a fixed point in time and it, which is a lovely idea that time mm. lords can somehow see this extra dimension in front of them and whether or not i'm picturing something yeah like no, doesn't matter. Echolocation. I'm very intrigued by this because now you now you've planted the idea that maybe it's maybe these fixed points in time are actually things where the doctor doesn't know it's but he's gonna be in you know, so they are predestination wow. paradoxes and that's why so now I wanna go back to Waters of Mars and see okay, yeah, is there something under- you can point out and say, Okay, it's this is only happening because the doctor's here and therefore he's trapped in it, and it has to... But but also it unravels, because like like you were saying with Day of the Daleks, you, you come to the point where it's inaction that would prevent prevent history. Hmm. Somebody has to, having been told that their actions, their positive actions will result in in the catastrophe, that they then have to carry it through, and that's that's the same thing here. It's, it's, hmm. it's not a choice to refuse to interfere in history, it's once you're armed with the knowledge that you did it, you then have to push the button. Hmm. And that's the Day of the Doctor problem uh, and the Day of the Daleks problem. Hmm. Interest? No. I oh, nearly said interestingly. Oh, well, I'm stuck with it now. Interestingly, <laughs> that's the one thing I'd forgotten about this story. I'd forgotten that it's a predestination paradox and that the Doctor himself presses the button hmm. and kills everyone. Yeah, so and I think I'd forgotten that because I. Yeah. that's the only thing I'm not sure I like about it. I'm not hmm. sure... I'm just not sure I like the idea, and I don't know whether it makes the story better. I don't know if it needs it. I don't know if it makes it a better story. And I probably pushed it out of my mind, thinking that the story would be perfect without it. Hmm. And I don't know if that's just squeamishness on my part, because I don't... But I guess there is squeamishness, because a moral dilemma becomes a bigger moral dilemma when it's uh, the number of people that are going to die. Someone's going to die. And it's just the well, it's very. It's a, well, but then again, is that more interesting? Or is that just utilitarian argument? It's either it's twenty thousand people it's or the old points railway points millions. problem, isn't it? The, yeah. the runaway train on oh, the yes. track. Do you change the points so it will run over one person rather than twenty? If you set the self-destruct and kill six Zygons, or 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 through inaction, can you be morally blamed as for the deaths of the twenty on the other line? I mean, you might ask, why is there a button marked "Press this to destroy Pompeii, mm. but save the human race"? Uh, I mean, it, mm. you know, it's it, a I guess big it doesn't red really button. matter in the end. Yeah, yeah, but but it, but it, but it feels it feels a little bit simplistic that, that that there is a button that you can press that's just going to yeah. sort everything out. Well, mm. considering it's such an important moment, again, it, it might be another reason why it could have been better as two episodes. But it's so. It gets so much done in one episode that that's, I feel churlish raising that possibility. But I'm going to anyway. Mm-hmm. So what do we think? We've got a lot of things mixed up here. And we've confused every, ourselves about whether a fixed point in time has to be, <laughs> has to be <laughs> some fixed because the time traveller himself is part of the events that caused it. Well, and as, as you've said, the Doctor doesn't know that he is... And mm. if that were the case, then the Doctor, if the Doctor arrived and could use his Time Lord's sixth sense to feel that this is a fixed point in time, that would tip him off that he's going to be involved in it. So he would, mm. so as I think you mm. were hinting, Gav, that would mean he can't just walk away. Unless, of course, mm. because if, <laughs> of course, if you know your history, Doctor Who knows his history. So when he arrives here, he knows what it is about this point in well, time that's that, fixed. It's the volcano day. 
Hmm. Yeah. There's there's a popular myth that hardly anyone died in the Great Fire of London, but the reality is that we don't know because an an awful mm. lot of stuff was unrecorded, so there, there could have no been... No one important died in the Great Fire of London. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so there it's like no one important ever been killed by a meteorite. <laughs> <laughs> you've got almost exactly the same situation in The Visitation. He, he could stop the Great Fire of London and save however many unknown lives yeah. and stop London from burning at the point he realised he was about to instigate the Great Fire of London. And Peeps' mm. cheese. Have... He could have saved Peeps' parmesan. so it's this question of when he arrives i guess could fixed points be moments that are are always going to have happened before he turns up because sometimes he turns up and history isn't written till he's left Mm. and that's called that's called the future (laughs) (laughs) yeah but specifically the future that the audience is aware of. Yes, quite. Yes. That's mm. the important thing. Yes. Because all of the places he's ever visited presumably have the potential to be fixed points if we happen to know, for instance, that it was critical that the Animus was destroyed on yeah. Vortis. Otherwise, yes. Zabi history would have been yeah. irrefutably mm. knackered. So at the point the Doctor turns up and says, oh, this is a fixed point, I must defeat the Animus... The audience doesn't know, therefore it's not important. I think I think yes. that that's what fixed yeah. points boils down to. That's why that's one of the things I liked so much about Waters and Mars, that we finally get a fixed point that's in the future that the audience yes. doesn't know about. Mm. Yes. So it pro- it's proof well, I mean we all knew that for it to make any sense at all. What I mean really I, I, did I say this at the time? I'm sure I did. I'm gonna say it again. That's the main thing that Waters of Mars achieved, apart from being scary. That it solved that niggling problem that the, the doctor's line about not being able to change history never made any sense mm. because what is history from whose point of view how, how did it solve that it solved it by retrospectively retconning that all the times in history when he couldn't change anything were fixed points in time for some reason and that none of the times in the future when he arrived on a planet for which the audience and or he didn't know um, what was going to happen weren't fixed points in time. It's the only that explanation is all you need. But didn't history write itself? Oh, I tend to the I tend to view that nothing ever changes. Mm. It's mostly a fixed um, timeline, Doctor Who, which I know is not universally shared. But, but isn't the point of Waters of Mars that that the people who should have died then go on to die anyway? Because she goes and then commits suicide, so her death is still there. But. Utterly inexplicable. Yes. Yeah. Two of them get away. Complete nonsense because she should have been on Mars. So her corpse just turns up on the wrong planet. So she presumably inspires her daughter to. Yeah. I mean, it's herself. No. Don't be a star. Let's move move back on to uh, (laughs) something else. Mm. Well, well, I was just (laughs) thinking, Gav, that that on the basis that we we, we spent an hour saying how wonderful the Romans was and then you slated it. Since we've been very middling about fires of Pompeii, it feels like you need to have a rant now about how wonderful it is. I think it's wonderful. It, it, it's mm. great, but it's quite flawed. I was surprised how flawed oh it God, was. Sorry. <laughs> no, but uh, I still thoroughly enjoyed it because I always rated it as, as one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised how many little bits just jarred with me. I thought little, you know, like you say... Just comedy is a terrible idea. I totally agree <laughs> with you. Just don't have anything fun ever. Yeah. 
No, seriously, some of the some of the jokes don't land. Some of the jokes are great. Some of the Catherine Tate's lines are really odd. Some of them are sublime. It's it's a mix. The the editing's frenetic. I mean, I don't know whether I was half asleep, but I just found the uh, the, the the pace of the the uh, shooting and editing was was almost overwhelming at times. But I, I'd always yeah. had that sense that it it never stopped from the stage. Yeah. Just a really pacey, fun, interesting. And for all its flaws, it it keeps going and it's lively and it's very, very beautifully shot. The location looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to keep stopping it when I was watching it because I wasn't going to be able to process it if I just watched it as a one-er. So I kept stopping it about every five minutes to scribble down a couple of things and then mm. move on. Oh. Because, because, as you say, it, it's just like one thing mm. after another after another. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> Can I talk about Caecilius and Metella and Quintus? Am I right in thinking that these are real people that we know were a family in Pompeii because archaeology? Yep. And that because oh. they are real people who we know were real in Pompeii, that's why these school Latin textbooks use them as characters. Correctly corrected. Excellent. I'm never going to say that again. <laughs> I'm looking at the looking at the two blank faces. I'm thinking. I knew part two of that. We didn't I knew all do it was Latin. From a Latin. No. <laughs> I knew it was from a Latin textbook. I didn't know it was from a... a no, I, I didn't know the Latin me, textbook was nobody from... Nobody told me at school that they were based mm. on real people. Right. Wow. I did Ecce Romani, so I don't think that... I did, the, that I did the approach ah. to Latin, which didn't have it in... Didn't have them in either, as far as I can remember. Oh, I, I, oh so none, none of you actually did the five volumes of The Adventures of Caecilius S. No. Martyr. I, I did German instead. Quintus... Oh, dear. What use is that? <laughs> How are you ever going to find? Wie kann ich am besten zum Bahnhof bitte? Ich bin Paul. Ich bin 13 Jahre alt. I'm I'm still 13 apparently. Mm. Um, I never. <laughs> I know. Oh, that went. That went well. Some of the jokes didn't land. <laughs> Hast, hast du Geschwister? Uh, uh, um, no, I didn't. <laughs> you can answer in Latin if you want. I did, it from, I did it from six months, and all I can remember is the first lesson. And uh, oddly enough, I did Latin for five years, and all I can remember is the first <laughs> lesson. I remember, I remember those, them so well, the adventures of Carcilius and uh, Grumio mm. es coquus, mm. of course. Grumio was the cook, yeah. not what you were thinking. <laughs> and I was waiting for... Mm. For Kerberos, the uh, Kerberos mm. Canis, and Kerberos Estin, Kerberos Estin, we are. For some reason, he's always is in the street. Um, right. No, yeah, disappointed not to see Kerberos. So a three-headed dog, I would rather have seen a three-headed lava spewing dog under Ooh, the yeah. Yeah. I think, <laughs> is what this story needs. Yeah. Mm. So, so, I mean, is is it is it deliberately? being Mary Poppins-ish when they sort of run and sort of try and stop those ornaments from falling off. I mean, that's that's what happens in Mary Poppins, isn't it, when the cannon goes off? Mm. I mean, ah, do you think good it, call. Do, do, you, do you think it's a it's a reflection of that, or do you think it's just they just it just happens to be the same thing because it's a similar scenario? I think that's what happens when you're a writer and you've seen other fictional mm. works. Right. You I've think never seen Mary Poppins. That's... <laughs> That's how my prosaic um, writing is done. I think, oh, a volcano! There's going to be an earthquake. This, yeah. we're, this is set in a house. We're, I'm trying to make this seem domestic. Oh, our things would wobble and fall over, and then I would remember having watched Mary Poppins as a child, mm. and I would put an homage in it, knowing that 
Yes. In a decade's time, somebody would watch his story again and spot it and yeah. tell the world. And is the uh, <laughs> similarly is the Doctor and the Doctor and Donna's escape uh, from the volcano a homage to nuking the fridge in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? Oh, my <laughs> God! I hope. Well, yeah, which was out the year before. I, mean, I just checked it, the um, checked the. It's allowable because alien volcano escape pods have better suspension and shock absorption than fridges. Nineteen yes. <laughs> fifties yeah. fridges. <laughs> That's so early in that film, and I knew then that <laughs> it was going to be a long afternoon. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I've heard they've cast Phoebe Waller Bridges, Professor Amelia Rumford, in the new one. Oh. <laughs> if only. She is in it, though, apparently. Is, is Harrison Ford still alive? 78, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and given, given the year Indiana Jones was born. Right. The year this new Indiana Jones must be set in is the year Star Wars comes out. So Indiana right. Jones can go and see Star yeah. Wars. Indy goes Indy's almost gone full circle. Brilliant. That would be well if they if they missed that, go, if they what is this shit? Wars, at least walking past us walking past a cinema then mm. Mm. Yeah. they've missed a trick. Yep. He comes out of the cinema and he says to his companion you can type that dialogue. Rather <laughs> 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 oh, the mind boggles, doesn't it? Yeah. Have we run out of things to say about the Pfizer? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting close. I think we're getting close. Did, so the star quality of Karen Gillan. How much can uh, we get? Yeah. On I was, this? I've forgotten she was Has in she it. Got in, but yes, does she stand out? Mm. Yes, I think she does. So at yeah. the start, she kind of mm. fades mm. away towards the end, but at the yeah. start, definitely. Yeah, she got. Got bored with the character. And... <laughs> yes, she's very mm. striking. Who is it who plays uh, Matella? It's wife. Tracy Charles. Is it Tracy Charles? Off of Howard's Way. Mm. Her off of Howard's Way and good. various various big Finnish audios. Mm. She does a good job, and I'm going to say something, make a random comparison with the Romans. I'm going to use her nice performance mm. in this to say that the cast is uniformly good here, as it, often, as it generally mm. is in New Who. And in the Romans, it's variable. Mm. It just struck me that the Romans, perhaps in common with some other stories at the time, they put a lot of effort into some of the bigger parts, but then they've made sure they got the best mm. people <laughs> by the parts where it's going to be important, but didn't bother with all of them. And it's wives is the connection, because Nero's mm. wife, the mm. actress, just plays it very matter-of-fact. Mm. She doesn't get any of the laughs. She's not a funny no. actor. And so, and the, even the poisoner, uh, the official poisoner, mm. which is a nice scene, but uh, she's not very funny yeah. either. Funny enough, so Kay, what's the name? Who, Kay Patrick, I think, went on to be Flower in the Savages, mm. and then jacked in all the acting, acting lark, and became a very successful director and producer. Mm. Well, I, th I'm glad that was a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> After a appalling mm. turn. <laughs> I don't think she's. A, <laughs> I wouldn't say she's appalling, but I, but I agree she doesn't. She doesn't no, bring all that I, I much would, to the party, does I, she? No. Well, you know, she wasn't inspired by the script, unlike mm. uh, Russell Enoch and Jacqueline mm. Hill, who thought, "Ah, finally a chance to to let mm. our hair down." And if only we had the savages, we we could um, draw a comparison. Indeed. Oh, temper our is. <laughs> Just waiting for the chance to get in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think I feel a scientific wow. paper coming on towards a 
towards an epistemic understanding of space-time causal nexuses. Next way, yeah. Mm. Like if I thought quickly enough, I could have I could have said something in a Welsh accent to to when you quote did some quick <laughs> Latin tag there to carry to carry on Russell's ah, amazing yes. <laughs> running joke, which made Gavin vomit. <laughs> I think I loved it at the time, but I was because a young because you were four. Then. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You found my level. I was childish. Mm. Now I'm old and cynical. <laughs> Anyone ever listened to the Fires of Vulcan? By the way. Oh yeah. Oh yes. You have, or just has it? Yes. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that's got uh, melody, Un- hasn't it? Unlike these, unlike these two, there aren't any jokes in it, are there? Are they not? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's straight. it was from the era when you had to write. <laughs> Seventh Doctor story very seriously to, mm. to balance out the nasty taste of all the ones on television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know why I said that. It's very good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and that wasn't what they were doing. Was it? Was it the one they wrote to bring Mel back? Was it her first? Was it Bonnie Lifer's first one in Big Finish? Or am I making that up? Anyway, good question. They're very similar time periods, aren't they? I mean, essentially, you know, so Nero sixty four AD and, and Pompeii seventy nine. Mm. I don't know that that necessarily says anything very much. I suppose it's the it's the peak, perhaps, of the Roman era. Mm, Seven hundred years of Roman Republican Empire, or something like that, and and they have to land within fifteen years of each other twice. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed, the Romans definitely knew about volcanoes. That's that's one of the minor <laughs> frustrations. <laughs> I mean, we have we don't want to get too bogged down in the historical nonsense. They but, were so. Um, to, to, to suggest city. that they were just standing around going, oh, this mountain's on fire today. That's weird. <laughs> That's really frustrating. Like that, Vesuvius had been active for, for hundreds of years. I mean, tens of thousands of years, but for hundreds of years of, of, of Roman and pre-Roman knowledge. I mean, they, I'm, sure there are, I'm sure I've read there were references to, you know, the fire mountain and yeah. things like that pre, pre the eruption of... Uh, oh. Do you remember the Warlock okay. of Fire Mountain? That was great, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Gavway. Oh, good lord. Yeah. He's been no. on Saturday mornings. Before who's, I was who's, born. Who's been to Vesuvius and or Pompeii? Done both, yeah. Yeah, good, aren't they? Let's, right, let's us two gang up against Yeah, the me others. neither. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done the leaning therapies. None of them. It's, 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 <laughs> it, I mean, the, the great thing about the leaning therapies is it's a tower and it's leaning. And you go, mm, mm. oh, yeah, look. It's, but, yeah, that's about all there is, really. <laughs> <laughs> How about Herculaneum? Yeah. I oh, thought Her- Herculaneum was more impressive than Pompeii, actually. It is, isn't it? Actually. It is, isn't yeah. it? And, they, and there's still a chance to uncover more, except that a lot of it's been built on top of, so they have some hard choices to make. Oh, right. Like- when, I was, when I was there, they just finished the new visitor centre, mm. and then almost the next day discovered that a hitherto unsuspected section of Herculaneum was right underneath <laughs> it. Right. <laughs> that was the first of their difficult decisions. Should have stuck with the so border it's a, cabin. It, it, it's oh. a bit like that uh, that uh, tip in, in New Zealand, isn't it? Where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where the missing episodes were done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. One of the Doctor's lines in um, Fires of Pompeii <laughs> stood out at me. Uh, what was it? The citizens of Pompeii are turning to stone before the eruption. But why? It just seemed like one of those lines that you might have in your head yeah. that before you've started writing and you'll think, I've got to get mm. there. That's brilliant. Mm. That encapsulates everything that, mm. that I'm trying to achieve with this. But it's a bit pat. Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, so a bit, a bit and of then a you take it life. out once you've built the structure. It's like it's like the seed you that should do. the story you goes do. from, it's... and then and then you look back at it. And you go, "This is so incongruous. <laughs> I need to." Yeah, yeah. It's like the sort of card former that you need to take off and throw away, isn't it? Mm. You take it out of the script and then put it on the back of the target. Yes, indeed. Mm. So another link I've got I've got here is that all roads lead to Rome eventually. Uh, because we do get a scene in Rome right at the very end of uh, this mm, one. True. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Well, it does feel like a bit of an adjunct. I'm sure yes. you're right. That doesn't come back to haunt us at any point, does it? The I, monument. I can never remember because I thought I, I was so strong. I, I was so convinced yeah, it would do exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Me too. That it, we're going to see that mm. again. And that it's going to be part of some sort of altering was... time um, arc. or I don't know. Caecilius goes on to be Roman Hitler. Hmm. And shouldn't have been Stephen saved. just going to go down yeah, some quite. kind of Stockbridge Horrors at some point. It's not too late to do that story. That they should have done that when Capaldi was the Doctor. Mm. He goes back and yes. meets his evil. Oh right, the the, Roman en- the enemy of the world. Mm. He's created the alternative timeline where Caecilius goes on to. Oh yeah, and then build he could a mar- marble empire and take and robots and take over the world, like in mm. he could do the Iron mm. Legion, the Marble Legion. Ooh. Wow. Some great pseudoscience to explain how marble-based <laughs> mechanics or, and or life forms would work. And it could be called the Marble Cinematic Universe. <laughs> oh, it's better. It's better than the. Oh well played. Sorry, I, 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 I think I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is going to be a tough enough editing job as it is. So if we keep adding more nuggets of gold like this in. So I think I, I, I think I think you. You told us all your links halfway through, didn't you, Paul? And then you added fire, but you mentioned that one as well and, and explained yeah. that. So, so I think we've we've kind of done the links too. I think we've been very restrained in leaving us to a pairing that is so obvious this late in the in the day. A lesser podcast would have done it in episode two or three. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I guess what I, what I didn't us. do at the very start was to point out that this was the pairing that um, our listeners demanded. Remember Good we had point. a poll. Yes, we did. Yes, so so yeah. you know you, you asked us, and uh, and we came through with it. So it's your fault if yeah. if, if, you've, if you've if you've hated listening to this over the last three and a half hours or however long it actually lasts in the edit, then it's entirely your own fault. <laughs> I think you'll find it's Moran's. <laughs> Wasn't that? Wasn't that one of the reviews you were, you were quoting from our reviews? And my favorite was something who is getting ever more ridiculous. It is only suitable for, for morons. For James Moran. Uh, well, look, thanks very much. I think this is an appropriate time to say thanks very much for your uh, company this evening. You know, we'll we'll be back in about a month's time with probably the second favorite from that poll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep visiting them until we run out. Yep. Ta-da. It's been a pleasure. Indeed. Goodbye. Can I stop? Yes. Before my computer explodes. You may. <laughs> I've been watching Sandra Dickinson in uh, season three or whatever it is of The Tomorrow People, and it's, oh, it's, it's excruciating, and it's it's dialed my it's dialed my stupidity meter off the charts. So I'll try and rein it in. I was, I mean, I am old enough to have watched The Tomorrow People when it actually, you know, originally ran, 
And I thought it was great at the time, and then I watched it again a few years later, and I realised that it wasn't. <laughs> it's a it's a mixed bag at best. <laughs> what a curious egg of a program. Yeah, and it's got a Romans episode. We could have bundled that into the review. Yeah. Well, never mind. If I, I the only problem now is I've got the wrong <laughs> flipping thing up, so I'm going to, have to find a different. One. <laughs> I, 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 I can't I can't keep the uh, the pace going. That's a shame, isn't it? Oh, I'm flagging right. already. And I yeah. thought I came over as a, so, <laughs> suddenly I said good evening, and I so he thought, did I sound like Kenneth Williams there? Good oh, evening. Yes. They don't like me, you know. <laughs> did, did you say you were you were, you were flag on already? Was that, you, was, that a, was that a Roman joke? Yes. Excellent. Uh, I missed that. Am, am, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think on. of an amphora gag now as well. Uh, I'll keep thinking. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it in at a random <coughs> moment. Really. Splendid. We'll, 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 we'll enjoy looking out for that. <laughs> <laughs>